Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives about what it looks like to raise kids and also build companies. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. In America, when you think of a mother, what do you think of? What image comes to mind? Well, for many folks, the default image of what a mother looks like is a white person. That's what Nefertiti Austin, a single African-American woman, discovered when she decided that she wanted to adopt a black baby boy out of the foster care system. She was eager to finally join the motherhood ranks, but Nefertiti was shocked when people started asking her why she wanted to adopt a crack baby or said that she would never be able to raise a black son on her own. She realized that American society saw motherhood through a white lens and that there would be no easy understanding or acceptance of the kind of family she hoped to build. Nefertiti is an author and a memoirist, and she writes about the erasure of diverse voices in motherhood. Her work around this topic has been shortlisted for literary awards, and she's appeared in the Huffington Post, The Establishment, Essence.com, Adoptive Families Magazines, PBS SoCal's To Foster Change and PBS Parents. She was the subject of an article on race and adoption in The Atlantic, and she appeared on HuffPost Live and One Bad Mother, where she shared her journey to adoption as a single Black woman. Nefertiti's expertise stems from firsthand experience and also from degrees in U.S. history and African-American studies. She is a former certified PSMAPP trainer, where she co-led classes for participants wanting to attain a license to foster and or adopt children from the foster care system. She's an alumna of the Breadloaf Writers Conference and Vona, and her first two novels, Eternity and Abandon, helped usher in the Black romance genre in the mid-1990s. Today, she is the author of Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America, which went on to become a number one Amazon bestseller over the last year. Today on this podcast episode, we have Nefertiti Austin joining us to talk about motherhood, race, adoption, and the white lens that applies to motherhood stories in America and more broadly in Western cultures today. We talk about being a single mom. We talk about her journey from being a law student to becoming a fiction writer and we dig into some of the mistruths around what's being told about what it looks like to be a single mom or what adoption is like, and also about blackness. As always, listeners, this show is about presenting a full spectrum of stories around what it looks like to become a parent. We live in a world where the dominant narratives around parenting don't match the realities of the lives of real parents around the world. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And let's dig into today's episode. One of the things that we have to think about today as parents that past generations didn't have to think about as much is data and privacy. How do all of these newfangled technologies work? And more importantly, how do they keep our data safe? As a new mom, privacy is one of my top priorities, especially when it comes to my kids. That's why we are so in love with the sponsor of today's episode, Nanit. Nanit makes the only video monitor that I trust to keep my data and my baby's data safe. It comes equipped with two-factor authentication, 
all of our data is covered by 256-bit encryption, and it keeps our data private from the outside world. So we get the baby monitor and the sleep help that we need, but all of the personalized data that we get is kept safe just for us. Nanit even allows you to create multiple user profiles, which is called the parenting team. So you can safely and securely share your baby's most precious moments with the ones who matter, but also the only ones that you choose. Go to nanit.com today. You can check out their Nanit Plus smart baby monitor. And startup pregnant listeners, you can use the code startup at nanit.com and save 10% off of your order. Everyone, I'm so excited to have Nefertiti Austin joining us on the show. Hi, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you are here. So my favorite question to start with, just to set the grounding for all the parents out there, can you tell us what time you woke up this morning and what the first thing you did was? Okay, so the first time I woke up was 2.38 a.m. when my seven-year-old announced that she needed to sleep with me. Then. <laughs> Second time I woke up was probably about 7.15, trying to move her over so I didn't fall off the bed. (laughs) Okay. And then you said, what did I eat? Or what's the first thing you do after you wake up? So the very first thing I do is, well, let the dogs out. And then I make coffee as I am then encouraging, because my 13-year-old, of, of course, he's usually still asleep. So it's the little one. She wants to talk me to death. And I'm like, can you please? <laughs> so, <laughs> like after the coffee. Yes. <laughs> Talking after the coffee. <laughs> this is all interesting. It's all interesting. And I want to hear all about it. Could you please? <laughs> you said she's seven? Yes. Like, does she ever make you coffee? Is that a thing? She has tried, and I've been thinking that I'm going to teach her how to do it so that when I get out of bed, my coffee will be waiting for me. I think she'd enjoy it, and it's it's low risk, so she won't be (laughs) But it will ensure that we both get off to a great morning. So (laughs) So she's an early riser. She's like, let's go. That's yeah. so funny. I when I visit my dad and my stepmom's house, he is an early riser, as am I. I identify with your daughter here. So and my poor stepmom is always like, Who wants to talk at six AM? Like who? So when I visit, my dad and I get up and we like drink coffee and talk from six to eight AM and she's like, Finally, I get to sleep in. <laughs> I'm sure she's glad you're there. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I got two dogs for him to entertain himself with. Okay. So you, you have this book, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. And listeners, this book, it addresses the very real problem of Americanized motherhood. The idea that the word mother is synonymous with being white. Can you tell me about the title of this book? Where did it come from? And Also wrapped up in that, when did you know that you wanted to write this book? So the title comes from an article I wrote several years ago called Parenting's Adoption, So White Problem, because as an adoptive parent and seeking adoption-specific resources, everything is really geared towards white parents of children of color. So the whole transracial adoption 
is really geared towards supporting white families. And so it was that knowledge coupled with just the reality that motherhood equals white, that it really, it made sense because it sort of captured my feelings as well as just the whole parenting paradigm that we all sort of exist under. And I didn't think I had a book the first few years. So I started writing about parenting and adoption in 2009. I think around 2011 was when I realized, oh, you know, maybe there's something here. And I had an agent at a time. And I thought I was writing a collection of essays that addressed different aspects of adoption more so and race, but, but less of a focus on motherhood. And, you know, several years go by and that agent and I parted ways. And then I got a new agent and she said, oh, this should probably be in more of a narrative format. And so that was 2017, I think. And so that was the beginning of changing the structure of the story. And then once the book was sold, my editor was the one who suggested that it be sort of a personal tell-all. And I start like at the beginning of my life and then, you know, quickly kind of segue into adoption. And then the racial ramifications of being a Black mother, mother of Black children, and just examining how race plays out in motherhood. Mm. And this isn't your first book. You had two books before this, if I'm reading right. that right. And they were fiction. They were novels, romance novels. Tell me what the genre. So there were romance novels. I'm self-taught and it was mid nineties and I was a law student. My, I was one L my first year and bored to death and started writing. And I was like at the height of Terry McMillan and Elin Harris and Bibi Moore Campbell. And I was like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> so <laughs> the first two books were romance novels. And I didn't see myself as a romance novelist. So I sort of exited the genre and then went on and did a whole bunch of other things. And certainly never dreamt that I would be writing nonfiction. And I've essentially written nonfiction for the last 10 years. And that definitely surprises me because my background is fiction. I was going to ask, what was it like to shift genres and to go towards writing memoirs? You know, in in hindsight, I think it was pretty natural because my early nonfiction writings were really a lot of rants. I was raging against the publishing machine at the fact that if you went to any bookstore or checked out movies or anything with regard to parenting, the people who were celebrated were white women and when I searched for mom advice like okay where are the books where are the stories about single black women who've adopted because I obviously wasn't the first and I couldn't find any so my early writings were really these rants against just how segregated the publishing industry was and is and the lack of resources for moms of color so it it was natural because I was I was writing my lived experience and it was very emotional writing. It took a while to really sort of kind of figure out what it was I needed to say and, and you know, maintain the emotion but not be so, you know, histrionic. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I think I would imagine, because I haven't done this, I would imagine that like 
figuring out what pieces of your story to tell is so challenging because you're also part of the narrative. So like, how do you create distance and understand what to say? That's what the editor's for. (laughs) Have a good one. (laughs) Well, you had a great one. I've been gripped by the book and I, there's so many pieces of it that stand out to me. Would you, for people listening who are like, well, what's this book about? What, what's the story? Can you give us some of the story? Tell us a little bit about your journey to motherhood. Like, what was it like for you becoming a parent? And did you always know that you wanted to become a parent? What was your parenting journey like? So I always knew I wanted to be a mother. And I always wanted to be married. So I had this plan, I think like most women, it's going to be married and have, you know, 2.2 children and dogs and cats and all that good stuff. And then I hit my mid-20s and my friends were getting married like right and left. And I knew then, I was like, oh, I'm not mature enough (laughs) for that. So, and even when their babies, you know, started coming along, I love them. But I was not ready to become a mother until I was ready. And that was my mid-30s. And so my book is about my journey recognizing when I was ready to get a mother. You know, I didn't get caught up in, oh, my God, everyone's getting married. I need to get on that train. And being really just true to myself. I'm very much a free spirit. And I know my family just didn't know what to do with me because they – did their best to really set me on a very traditional path. And just when it seemed like they were winning, oh, she's going to be a lawyer, you know, then I'd go and I'd make a left or I'd make a right. And so I write about my experience having been raised by grandparents, and I call that my Black adoption, and my parents who were part of the Black Power Movement as young people had drug problems and criminal issues. And between the two of them, they just – we're not ready to parent. And ultimately my brother and I were raised by grandparents. And so I didn't realize until I was actually writing motherhood so white that my experience having been raised by not related to them, but they didn't give birth to me that that really sold the seeds for adoption. And when I was ready to become a parent, I knew I wanted to adopt first. I still wanted to have biological children, but I definitely wanted to adopt first. My best friend, social worker. So it was pretty, I think, a foregone conclusion that I would adopt, though my family was so surprised that that was a choice that I made. And so that was, that was how I got to that point where I was like, okay, you know what, this makes sense to me and for me. Yeah. And you, you write about the stereotypes and the myth mistruths in the adoption process about like what people are led to believe about what it'll be like to adopt. Can you talk, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of negative stereotypes around the children in foster care. So the first question is who are these kids? And typically the answer is, okay, these are the leftovers. These are the rejects. These are children who were not wanted by their families, which is absolutely not true. Children, wind up in foster care primarily for neglect and abuse. And they're not enough foster homes, you know, we can start with that. And definitely they are not equal. Some are better than others, but the children who are in foster care 
are there, you not because they want to be there naturally, while many of them may present with behavioral challenges later or physiological issues, you know, on the front end or, you know, maybe sometimes a, a little later, they have been painted with a very negative brush. And so that led me to want to adopt a black boy because black boys were, are least likely to be adopted because people think that black boys are going to grow up and become gang members and, you know, just can't do anything with them. And they'll be just the lowest of the lowest. And so the, the black men and the black boys whom I grew up with, they were great guys. And I just knew that that wasn't like, it didn't have to be that way. And so part of my wanting to adopt a black boy was, you know, part community service. And also I thought, here's an opportunity for me to make a difference in a child's life and maybe help to flip that negative stereotype. Mm. I haven't slept very much this year because I have two small children, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and it's a pandemic. But I think it's more than lack of sleep that makes me want to cry when I read those statements, right? Like I am I am so touched by your book and also so disappointed and angry in America <laughs> because it is like, I have a two-year-old, I have a four-year-old, I have two little boys as far as I know. And it's not okay. It's not right. It just broke my heart when I read about all the discrimination and racism rampant in how we treat little black boys. So then went on to adopt, which was, it's not a simple process, right? (laughs) I've I've spoken to several people who've been through adoption, many on this podcast. Yet, can you give us, give us a glimpse into the steps that it, it took for you to adopt your little boy? Well, I live in Los Angeles and I chose to go the public foster care route. And so the first part of it's relatively simple. You go to an orientation and then you sign up for parenting classes and there isn't a huge cost involved. It's actually quite minimum because you're just paying for your background checks and CPR certification. And the classes are pretty interesting. They give a lot of background on who the kids are, who the parents are, who lose their children to the system. And, you know, many of them do have their children returned to them, you know, certainly not enough. So we got that type of information. And that's the easy part. It gets hard when the kids are placed with you. And so from the moment my son came, so it was, you know, just a wonderful evening, but it was truly the beginning of the journey because that opened me up to, and I was aware of it, but it was something, you know, intellectually to know, oh, there will be social workers coming once a week. That's very different in practice. So we did a social worker. We were mandated to make sure he had visits with his biological mother. And so that was crazy because it wasn't like every Tuesday at two o'clock, you know, you guys will come together. It was really around her schedule, which meant I had to change my hours at work around her schedule. And then sometimes she wouldn't even show and I'm leaving work to get him from daycare to go across town to the meeting spot. And then she wouldn't come or at the last minute I'm leaving work and I get a phone call from the social worker to say, oh, by the way, she's not coming or it's an hour later or it's tomorrow. So that was definitely very stressful. And 
you you have a worker who gets you started and then you have the child's worker who delivers your child to you and then you get another series of workers whose job it is to check on the child's well-being for however long that takes so in our case it took almost two years to finalize and we ran through nine workers because my son's case was so large and I didn't know from month to month who was coming. So (laughs) I have a rapport with one worker and then, you know, someone else is coming and I'm like, okay. And often because the social workers are overworked, they were not up to speed on the case. So I had to very quickly become very educated about what was happening because I had to be the one to tell the worker, okay, we've done this, we've done that, this is what we need, this is where we are, and that, so it it just requires a very, a huge amount of patience and a high level of being organized, and obviously we got through it, but it was definitely, that was probably the most stressful part of it. It wasn't even, I mean, motherhood has its own stressors, as you know, especially dealing with the baby, but it was that on top of these people coming in and out and me being very vulnerable and exposed until the case was closed. Whoa, that, the, the level of project management almost when you're already like a brand new mother or a foster parent or anyone taking on any form of caretaking already knows that like, oh, wow, the project management, the household management, the like emotional management of this other person is already tremendous. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, that's not it. I also got a project manage this caseworker. Oh, it's a new one. Well, wow, that sounds, I mean, it sounds like you must have gotten a lot of sleep during that time in your life. No, I didn't. But, you know, I kept my eye on the prize. And even the times when I felt frustrated or annoyed by the process, you know, I just tried to keep focused on, you know, this isn't going to last forever. And if it's two years out of a long life, you know, I I can do it. We can get through it. And it didn't disrupt our day to day. I mean, our my son and I bonded immediately and it didn't interrupt us from traveling or spending time with family and friends. So we just kept it going. I mean, much like the pandemic, you know, we make lemonade out of lemons. You do what you have to do. Do what you got to do. I know. I, I keep thinking, I'm like, so how much further will my adrenals go? How many coffees can this mom have? And then when does it stop working, right? Like when is it, I just look at people and my husband and I have this shorthand where I say words aren't working when I can no longer function and I'm like trying to tell him, I'm like, but the kids need to be fed, but I can't get the words out of my mouth. And I'm like, see, children, me, words, they're not working. So (laughs) that's me with a partner, right? So I want to ask you about single motherhood. My sister is a single mom. I think it's got to be one of the hardest challenges there is. If I'm being honest, I like just in the journey of motherhood, I personally made all sorts of assumptions about what it would look like to become a parent, right? I had that listeners, I've said this before, but when I was, I think when I was 28, I probably thought to myself, oh, I'll be able to make it work because I will just work harder, right? I had all these assumptions. I want to talk to you about what it was like to become a single mom and whether it was what you expected, whether it was different than what you expected. And if you could wave a magic wand and tell other people, you know, what is it really like to be a single mom? Here's what I wish you could know. Well, I wish you could know it is extremely hard. And while it made sense for me, because at the time I wasn't 
when I was ready to become a mom, I wasn't married. I wasn't dating anyone in particular. And what was most important to me was motherhood. I wanted to be a mom more than I wanted to be a wife at that moment. But since, you know, that's been 13 years, I think in the last few years, especially it's hard. And I have two children now, so it's really hard to be a single parent. I'm outnumbered all the time. And I would love to have a partner in the home, assuming that it would be a partner who helps. I mean, I do have friends who are married and their partners, their husbands aren't as helpful as they would like them to be. I think most married women feel that way. (laughs) Yeah. But it's, it's definitely hard. It's exhausting. And so, you know, the good news is I get to make all of the decisions and that appeals to the control freak in me. But the bad news is if things don't go right, you know, I get all the praise or I get all the blame. So it's, it's sort of a, it's an either or situation. There's never sort of like, I could pass the buck. Like what your dad said, you know? (laughs) So, and also, I mean, I'm fortunate in that I have a lot of friends who definitely are very helpful, but Single motherhood is not for the faint of heart. Now, if it meant that I could not have my children, then definitely I would not complain. I just suck it up and that's pretty much what I do anyway. And as a single parent, I think what people need to know is even if you don't have help in the home necessarily, you have to build a community for yourself and for your kids. And it's In addition to, you know, having your mom friends and maybe you sit around and you drink or you talk and you laugh because that's huge. You absolutely need those outlets, but you really also need people who are willing to come and pick your kids up and take them somewhere (laughs) away from you for a little bit and give you a chance just to sit around and stare out the window if that's what you choose to do or take a bath in peace and things like that. So I would say build community if you don't have it and whatever that community looks like, if it's coworkers or family members or neighbors, you know, whoever is willing to help you say yes to the help. You know, you seem to have, have, uh, and I'm reading this from the book, but you tell me if this is true. You seem to have built a really remarkable village of people, mentors and role models and coaches and folks yes. to help you. How? You know, how did you, how did you do that? And how did you build that? Well, I knew going in because I wanted a little boy. I knew that there would be things that, I mean, I could pretty much teach him everything, but, but not everything. I can't teach him how to be a man. So I was well aware that there would come a time when he was really going to need male influences in his life. I was really fortunate. One of my really good friends, he declared himself godfather. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And I've just been very fortunate in in the spaces I've been with regard to work. The men I've worked around, they've been very supportive. And I believe the beginning of the, the longest our biggest community that I've been able to build really started in kindergarten and it was with, with little league and those parents were very inviting and the fathers were the coaches and they just, they took to us and they all treated my son like he was one of their sons and everyone was very loving and supportive and we've maintained that relationship because the kids still go to school together and this is year nine that they've been together and we've met other people along the way you know come along and everyone's been 
super supportive. I think largely because I was open to it. I mean, I never thrust him upon folks like, you know, and expected them to parent on my behalf, nothing like that. But I was open to any advice that they offered. And I was open to them saying, hey, I'll come and pick him up and we'll have extra practice or we'll have man time. He can come and hang with us. And so I think that has gone a long way with really establishing his community. And then when my daughter came along, the same, same group of men, very wonderful. And they all had boys. So she was like the daughter for all of these men. <laughs> so they were happy to have a little girl, you know, a change of pace, different energy. <laughs> um, and she's very loving and affectionate. So she'd look at them and they've fallen over themselves trying to get her whatever she needed. <laughs> so. oh, I love that. I'm really curious. I'm going to switch gears just a tiny bit to back to talking about the book as a writer. You published it. It's almost been exactly a year. I think it came out in September, 2019. Yes. And I am really curious, what was the reception like when it first came out? And then how has it changed as we've lived through 2020, especially with the summer that we've had? So it came out to really great critical reviews, a lot of momentum out the gate. And then I think like with most new shiny things, you know, just sort of kind of uh, was still selling and I was still getting invitations, but kind of dried up a little bit. And then when we hit the murder of George Floyd, it just like, it was like motherhood so white was rediscovered and suddenly it was a huge clamoring and so for something so tragic for his murder Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, the beauty that came out it out of it for me was I had a lot of white mothers reaching out to me saying, oh, I've had your book for months and I hadn't had a chance to read it. And I finally read it. And thank you for sharing your perspective. Or I didn't know that black mothers really fear for their kids when they go out and play. That's not something I've ever thought about. Nothing I've ever worried about, you know, my child playing with a toy gun or these things. And so there was, I felt like a huge recognition of the cultural significance of being a black mother and the historical significance of being a black mother in America. And so I received so many invitations for a podcast and I was already working on a piece for the New York times. And so when that came out in July, you know, just uh, people have reached out to me because they've said, Oh, I never knew that in the black community, it's very traditional for relatives to raise other relatives. And that's the reason the numbers of black parents who adopt children are seemingly low. So it's been great. It's been a great opportunity to not only get the word out, but to get people thinking about their mom friends and what that space looks like in their life. And people saying that, oh, I'm reaching out more in in a way that I I hadn't or wouldn't have thought to do so beforehand. So, you know, I like to say it's beauty for ashes. And, you know, the sad part is black people are still being killed by the police. Like it didn't stop for us. I know the conversation isn't as hot and heavy as it was, you know, as May through probably early August, but it's still happening on a weekly basis, on a regular basis. And 
you know, maybe white people aren't talking about it as often, but you know, we do. So. Absolutely. Desiree Attaway just wrote an email newsletter about white apathy and how that's going to start to set in here because our collective attention span, I say our, because I do think the attention spans are a pretty universal issue, but the white attention span and the media attention span is like, we just move on to the next thing. We, you know, let me wiggle my hand there, move on to the next thing so quickly. And I'm attuned to that. And also I feel the overwhelm of the news media. So I really am so grateful that you're here on this podcast talking about it. Part of this problem that you address, this idea of telling only one story about motherhood, is that there's this baked in idea of what motherhood is supposed to look like, this kind of universal ideal, you know, perfect round bump. It happens with a pregnancy. It happens in a heterosexual partnership. It happens for white middle-class women. Like there's just so many pieces of this story that are, I mean, it's not universal because first of all, what is it? 40% of households are headed by a single mom. Absolutely. Yes. You know, first of all. Um, and second of all, like whites are not the majority. So they're, they're dominant, but they're rapidly approaching not being the majority. So there's no way that this can be the universal story of motherhood. Yet somewhere in the recesses of many of many people's brains is this fiction of what it's supposed to look like. And from there, we open our mouths or I, you know, go back to me and make it more in my experience. I open my, my mouth and make all sorts of assumptions and the questions I ask and the things we say. And, you know, I see humans basically dumping all these opinions and hurtful comments all over each other. Can you talk to this? Because you have a chapter in your book, I think it was called Other People's Opinions, right? about the the things that people can say that seems so innocuous, but really are laden with assumptions. Well, definitely. I mean, okay, let's talk about single motherhood, for instance. And so for single white women, I mean, there's certainly stereotype and there's diversity within all groups. You know, white motherhood is, is not a monolith either. I mean, there's diversity naturally. But when you take a look and you compare, say, single motherhood, white single motherhood, black single motherhood, I mean, I I wrote about like Murphy Brown and about how, you know, her oops pregnancy, it was celebrated and it was really seen as, oh, she's so strong and she's powerful and she's badass. But for women of color, it is the opposite. It's, you know, mm, there they go again. See, you know, promiscuous, you know, she's promiscuous, she's poor. She's uneducated. She's got to be all of these negative things to be a single parent, as opposed to maybe someone in my case who's highly educated, who's traveled all over the world and has chosen single motherhood because that fit my lifestyle. And to look at me, you can't tell those other things about me, but I'm a black woman and I've got two children and they're by two different fathers. And so I'm looking like I'm just running all of the stereotypes, you know, right on up the flagpole. And the suggestion is that because I'm a single black mother and perhaps I've made these errors, I don't deserve to be lauded in the way white mothers are. I don't deserve the same respect that white mothers do. I don't deserve the same protections that white mothers get, whether they are single or not. And so that hurts everybody. 
but it definitely hurts black mothers and it hurts the children we are raising because that bumps into the type of services our kids become eligible for, what our schools are going to look like, services that are within our community. And then it also dumps on the kids. So then there's an assumption, oh, this black boy has a single mother for a parent. There's not a father in sight. So therefore this child must be bad. He must be slow. He must, again, excuse me, all of the negative worst things you could think about a person suddenly get dumped upon these kids because I'm a single black mother. Same with my daughter. Oh, she'll grow up and, you know, be a teenage mom or she'll be this and that. And I don't think that those stereotypes are attributed to white women, to, to single white mothers or married white mothers. It's just something that is seemingly inherent and it's something that is dumped upon mothers of color. Yeah. And it's an awful, not self-fulfilling prophecy, but when legislatures, politicians, policymakers blame the person for the problem, it enables them to lift their hands and say, oh, well, we don't have to do anything to solve it because it's their fault. Right? It allows for this lack of collective responsibility that's so problematic. Instead of saying, oh, interesting, like what's happening here? What are the assumptions we're making? What's going on? What are the systemic reasons why we might be able to change or support or encourage all humans? It's just, it is a deeply, deeply problematic problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it lends itself to a lack of empathy. And so, you know, you see. The, so, so part of it is self-fulfilling in that, depending on your social economic level, then sure, you know, your health, that impacts your health insurance and, you know, how your providers treat you. And as a parent, when you go in to talk to the teacher, it impacts how the teacher is going, you know, teacher size you up and they make a decision, oh, this is a person who is this, and so I will maybe play down their concerns, or this is a person who's that. And so I will treat them differently. And I certainly know that I've had to make it clear. And I think just in how I carry myself, I don't know that I've been, well, that's not true. I'm sure I've been underestimated, but <laughs> I try not to leave with credentials. But, you know, every now and then I've had to do that in a way I know my white mom friends have not had to do. And it's largely because I am a single parent. So I have to speak in my you know, use my $25 words to make it very clear that you are dealing with an equal. And if I'm making a statement or I'm asking you a question, I'm expecting you to give me what, you know, the best of what you have to offer. And I know to do these things, but because of negative stereotypes around black mothers, especially single black moms, they don't get the respect that they deserve. hundred percent. And people listening, if you haven't done like the implicit bias study over at Harvard or like racial bias research, and you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I don't do that. Like, I don't look at someone and think this or that. This is actually happening at the subconscious, the unconscious level. So this isn't something that we choose to do or, or choose not to do. It happens in an instant, even if you think you're not doing it. And it happens across almost all races and genders and classes too. Even the people who are feeling or experiencing the oppression can still internalize some of these 
stereotypes and discriminatory attitudes. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that's the thing. So you get a lot of people who feel like, oh, well, I'm not, you know, racist or I'm not prejudiced or I'm not this or I'm not that. But if you were, I I haven't taken that study. I can just imagine I'm going to take a look into it. But I would imagine some of the questions are definitely triggers where a person can really kind of self-reflect and be able to recognize instances when they did make an assumption or they did stereotype unconsciously. So those studies are excellent because it helps a person to really check in with self before they um, put that on a child or, you know, encounter someone out in the world. So how has your parenting journey, motherhood, changed how you show up in the world and what you work on and the work that you do? How has your career changed in becoming a mother? Well, like I said, I have a background in fiction and now I'm, you know, nonfiction memoirist. So, <laughs> that, so <laughs> still a writer, still yeah, publishing, still, still publishing, still a writer. But my, the topic and the themes have changed significantly. And so I find that I primarily am still writing about parenting and about race and about empathy and and talking to children about race. And, you know, at at some point, plan to go back to fiction, but my career path, my literary career path at this moment is still very much shaped by my role as Black mother. And so how I show up, I show up as mom and I show up as black mom because my intersectional experience is, you know, I can't separate one from the other. And so I think I, I show up as someone who's proud and someone who's happy and I'm a pretty laid back person unless I have a reason not to be. So I definitely, you know, make a point to be a good listener, you know, out in the world and I try to be aware of where I am and, and same thing with the kids, you know, really teaching them to be mindful of, of where they are and who their audience is. So I think that that definitely is inherent in people of color moms. We learn to code switch very early. And so, you know, I'm definitely a mother who code switches accordingly. I haven't ever asked anyone this question before. So I'm, I'm thinking in terms of code switching, and the languages you speak, how many different languages? And I'm not talking about actual languages. I'm talking oh, about I how many you. codes do you switch between? Yeah, I got you. I, you know, five, six, maybe. It, mm-hmm. it just, you know, just so there's the professional piece. I'm also an adjunct history professor. So that's another, you know, hat that I wear. And I have my boy mom code. I've got a girl mom code because that's a whole different, that's something new that I'm learning with the girl and definitely professionally navigating between parenting conversations versus being a woman in the world, a a black woman and, you know, pet owner code. (laughs) So So lots. I mean, I don't know. I, I hadn't considered that. And I just, I've always done it. So I don't, I hadn't thought about like how many languages, but definitely multiple. Oh, yeah. Languages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You have a seven-year-old and a 13-year-old. I think that's what you said at the beginning, if my memory is working correctly. Yes. Is your 13-year-old now, I'm assuming, taller than you? 
Yes, he passed me up a couple years ago. Wow, wow. And I swear to God, he's grown two inches in the last seven days. So. <laughs> Is he bumping into things, like do his elbows hit the doors or? You know, he's been clumsy for years and he's really, really slim. And he's still, he's just like held together just by, I think, sheer will. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was going to say, so what, what's it like now being, being the mom to a teenager and somebody that's taller than you? Since school let out in June, it's been great. But seventh grade was hard for him. So we ran smack dab into puberty and hormones and all the drama of being a teenager. And I remember when, like, 14 being a really tough year for me. And so for my son, it seemed like 12 has been his was his breakdown. He's 13 now. And so now it's pretty cool because we can – we've always had a very close relationship. And so I think we're still maintaining our closeness, but we're having, you know, different conversations because he's interested in girls and confounded already by them. And I just tell him, just get ready to remain confused. And it's okay. (laughs) I see him looking down on me from time to time, like sizing me up. (laughs) He's taller than me. And, you know, which is so, funny that you know of course I remember carrying him in my arms and now he could pick me up so that's that's cool it's 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 a good thing so I think I've compartmentalized as a survival mechanism because I think about what it'll be like when these two boys are taller than me which is probably going to happen in just a minute Oh yeah. <laughs> this four year old's already half my height. Yes. And I mean the one thing I have done, this is so inconsequential, but I raised all the shower heads because they were at like five eight and I I'm actually five ten. So I was like, we're gonna need some tall showers, but just walking around this home and thinking that I'm gonna be the short one is really disconcerting. <laughs> Because in my magic mirror, I'm 5'10", but I'm actually five feet. So my son is probably five five. Mm. and stretching and uh so now I can say to him can you reach up there (laughs) I can't can you reach up there and get you know such and such so um that's great because I'm just going to sit down and be directing people okay I need this and I need that yeah (laughs) you make the coffee you get those things off the tall shelves oh but my brother you this might happen to you my brother is six almost six five and he used to just go around and put things out of my reach as tall as he could so I couldn't get them so like my mom would bring the groceries home and he would take all the good stuff and put it up super high <laughs> oh, hmm, thank you I'm going to well what he does now is I'll get up in the morning and I'll be like is that a wrapper did you eat crackers in 30 so I'm like dude the kitchen is closed you're gonna have to eat more during the day but yeah he's really like I'm gonna have to get a Costco membership I haven't had one but now I'm gonna have to that's right just uh, and like two slow cookers just so you can keep up with how much they eat oh what are you what am I last question for you what are you excited about and working on next where can people find you and find out more about your work so I completed a couple of drafts of a children's book about kids in foster care because I think there's one And it isn't specifically for children in foster care. It's for all kids because, again, you know, it's important, I think, ways to develop empathy with children. You start when they're young. And if children can learn early on that, you know, every family is unique and 
some children don't live with their parents for whatever reason, and to be aware of that and to know that sometimes the kid at school who's a bully or who seems angry, it may be that, you know, she's angry because she misses her mom or the child who is dirty or maybe really withdrawn. You know, again, it could be because they've been separated from their siblings and they're lonely. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Hope the editor likes it. And I am considering I need to actually get my book proposal together about writing yet another nonfiction book about mothers and daughters and Mm. really diving in with, you know, again, in our country, we've got like really strong opinions about revering mom, but what happens when, but if mom wasn't there, you know, like everyone doesn't have warm fuzzies for their mom and that's okay. And I am writing an article about the digital divide and how there are ways that children can maybe support other kids who don't have access to, you know, computers or Wi-Fi or whatever the case may be. And again, to not take for granted, I'm always talking to my kids about, you know, when you log in, you assume that you're going to have Wi-Fi, you know, you're going to get to the internet because I paid for it, but not every child has that. And I don't want you to forget that there's a lot of grace in your life. And, you know, let's, let's be thinking about other people when we begin to complain about distance learning or Zoom glitched on you, or you got kicked out of a call because you can log back in. And, you know, a lot of families don't have that option. So that's what I'm working on. So you can find me at Twitter and Facebook at Nefertiti Austin and on Instagram, I am Nefertiti Austin. I have a website, www.nefertiti Austin. And as you know, I respond. So if uh, people yes, send, you me do. <laughs> send me it, I think that's the polite thing to do. If you send a note, I respond. So. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share your story and tell us about what you're working on and tell us about your motherhood and parenting journey. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we could connect. And everyone listening, I will put all of those links in the show notes so you can follow on whatever social platforms you're on or say hello if there's a project you're working on. And as always, I say this, you know, but go say nice things. Like it's really quite pleasant when someone reaches out on Twitter and says like, well, thank you for your interview or thank you for writing the book. So when you go out on the social world, be one of the voices of kindness and it'll help make the world a little bit better. Thanks everyone for listening. And if you found this episode useful, valuable, and informative, I have a few more episodes that you might appreciate that talk a little bit more about issues that we brought up today. Go back in time all the way to episode number two for our interview with Annie Dean and looking at how we can design flexible workplaces that make more sense for parents and families. Or if you're fired up, check out episode number 23 with Sarah Lacey of Chairman Mom, where she talks all about 
overthrowing the patriarchy, and why there may be a power or political agenda behind not granting paid leave policies. If you want to dive into more on the conversation about race, social justice, and getting politics into your business and what that looks like, check out episode 36 with Tepsi. Two more that you might like include Planning Ahead for Maternity Leave as an Entrepreneur, episode number 65 with Ariana Taboada. And episode number 75, we talk about what it looks like to transition back to work after a career break with Rita Kakati Shah. Because oftentimes when faced without time or paid leave, you need to plan ahead for your own maternity leave and figure out a way to make it work. That's what Ariana talks about in episode number 65. But sometimes you take a break and it ends up being one or two or three years and you realize, how do I get back into my work life if that's where I am today? Take a listen to episode number 75 if that's you. I will put all of these links into the show notes and you can always find the episode number either by scrolling through your podcast player and looking for the episode number or you can go to startuppregnant.com and then type backslash 065075002, whatever the number is that I just listed, enter the three sequence number onto our website and you can find our episodes. If you want to browse through all the episodes we've done, you can go to startuppregnant.com slash archive and see everything that we've put forward and put out to date. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hey, everyone, just a heads up and a reminder, if you want to listen to our long form Ask Me Anything sessions, they are 30, 45, and sometimes 60 minutes in length, and they we go deep into questions that people have. If you want me to look at your business, you want me to comment on your marketing plan, or you have a question about parenting, pregnancy, or anything in between, we are taking listener questions, and I answer them in a monthly Ask Me Anything fireside chat. It's available only to our Patreon supporters. So if you back us at the $7 a month level, you get access to this private podcast. You can get access to all of the past episodes, which is pretty cool. So if you're missing the podcast while we're on our hiatus and you want to take a listen in to these Ask Me Anything episodes, go over to Patreon and become a monthly backer at the $7 per month level and you'll get access to all of the future episodes, as well as all of the past episodes. Keep in mind that you are also supporting the work of Startup Pregnant and our growth in these early days, and that matters a ton. Every dollar helps and counts, and we appreciate so much and are grateful for your support. Patreon.com slash Startup Pregnant will take you right there. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Did I spell that right? Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Yes. Patreon.com slash Startup Pregnant will take you there. The link will be right here in the show notes. You can go straight there. $7 a month and you get access to this entirely exclusive Patreon-only podcast. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. 
we send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.